Well, we're going to read together from God's Word. Um, it's Romans chapter 4. So you go past the four Gospels, and then you have the book of Acts, and then, and then Romans, if you're looking in your Bibles. And it's chapter 4 that we're going to be reading from. So Romans chapter 4. This is in um, the, the stream of, of Paul, who's writing this letter, his argument, his explanation of, of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and how that fits with um, what the Jews knew and believed, and what they had been taught. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So again, speaking to the Jews, descended from Abraham. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs of faith, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who also gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So please, if you have a Bible, do turn to the, uh, the passage that was read. And uh, we're going to be thinking about three questions today. Um, and questions come in different forms, don't they? You've got the, where were you at two o'clock last Saturday evening? Well, officer, I was in, tucked up in bed. That kind of question, sort of being interrogated, a bit threatening maybe. Uh, the kind of question of, um, you know, on, uh, we're just doing a poll and we would like to know, how do you do your vote in the last, and you go, oh no, you know, kind of irritating question, how long is the poll going to be? Oh, it'll only be five minutes when you know it's going to be at least a quarter of an hour. That kind of, you get that kind of question, gets on your nerves a little bit. Uh, maybe it's the innocent question, uh, tea or coffee, you know, it's, it's rather trivial, but you've got to answer it. Um, the factual question, I was doing a, a, a test yesterday, I was a geography tester. What is the capital, capital of Senegal? And I put, no idea. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> but those kind of questions, you know, trivial knowledge, doesn't much consequence to it. And then there are the kind of questions in this passage. And these are the kind of questions where you're thinking to yourself, does this fit? Can we afford it? Where should I go on holiday now? You know, those kind of questions which you're thinking inside your own head. It's not that somebody's questioning you, nobody's getting at you, but you're thinking to yourself. And in a sense, in this passage, he's he's answering three questions that are going on inside his hearers' heads. He's been explaining the Christian message. He's come to a climax at the end of chapter 3. He's been explaining the stupendously wonderful good news. But then in chapter 4, he he answers this question that would be inside somebody's head. And the first uh, eight verses, the question is this. Is Christianity, is this this just new, newfangled and made up? Is it newfangled and made up? That's the the kind of question in his hearers' minds. Is it just new? Is it, you know, now I don't know how you are about new things. If you can imagine a curve like that, you know, a curve like that. Well, at this end, new things, you love them. You've got them. You're in. This end, right, the curve, you kind of know, not sure about that. Most of us in the middle somewhere, aren't we? But, you know, as you age, you do move from this end to this end. That's what happens as you, as you age. I, I discovered that with this machine. You've probably got one. But I, I was very happily paying Vodafone quite a bit of money every month uh, till my daughter said about two months ago, Dad, what are you doing that for? There's a much cheaper option. You could go for Voxy. I said, well, I've never heard of them. She said, well, I'll do it for you. Uh, and, and you know what's happening now? I'm paying two lots of mobile phone bills because I don't know how to leave Vodafone to get to Voxy. See, that is what happens as you get older. You become like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And maybe for the earliest hearers, 
That's how the message would have struck them. You've come across this great news that I can be right with God, I can have peace with God. But it it just sounds so newfangled. I mean, it's only just happened. What about this crucified Jesus? I'm not so sure. Now, today, you think, well, that's not the case, is it? I mean, Christianity's been around a long time. But back in the day, compared to Judaism, compared to the, the religions of of Rome and Greece and Egypt, or just the vague sort of superstitious, slightly spiritual, vague feeling that most people had, it seemed like the new kid on the block. And bizarrely, in Western Europe today, if you start explaining the Christian message, it will sound, Are you, this, this sounds new. I remember when I was uh, first become a Christian, um, nearly 50 years ago now, and... Uh, at the time, the phrase born again was being used a lot. And a lot of, a lot of people in Britain go, oh, there's born againers. Are you all come from America? You know, you've invaded England, the born againers. That was a kind of thing where it sounded so new. Whereas actually it was, it was on the lips of the Lord Jesus. It, it had been known and experienced in Britain for years, but it sounded so new and people were a little bit suspicious of it. When the Christian message is brought to people... It is so against what you think that you think, oh, is this new? Is it made up? Is it newfangled? And so what he does is say, well, look, I want to show you the message I've just explained, which I'm going to unpack. What did someone like Abraham find? Now, what does he go back to Abraham? Well, you know all about what we call product endorsement, don't you? Don't you? Do you know product endorsement? You get a celebrity to say, this is a good thing. Uh, I like listening to classic FM on my journeys. And uh, one of the slightly irritating things is Stephen Fry endorsing everything that Sainsbury's do. Now, I, I buy Sainsbury's. I don't need Stephen Fry, but he, you know, I, he does it. And the idea is if a celebrity says it's good, it must be good. It isn't that, but it's that kind of thing. Let's go back to somebody that you revere. And it is quite striking, isn't it? This man, Abraham. Here we are thousands of years after Abraham lived and thousands of millions of people, thousands of millions of people, all the three great what we call monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, look back to this man and say, well, he certainly had a relationship with God. And so the question is, okay, I want to show you it's not newfangled. Let's go back to Abraham. I know you revere him. I revere him. You revere him. Let's go back to Abraham. What did he find? What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather? How did Abraham get a relationship with God? And he explains in verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. He wasn't justified by works. That's the point he makes. Now, immediately he's used the word and he's taken us to a law court. That word justified is a law court word. It happens at the end of a trial. The evidence has been presented, the accuser's in the dock, the judge sums up, and then he pronounced the verdict. Guilty, condemned, take the prisoner down. Or innocent, justified, no charge to answer, go free. And here's the law court. 
How do we hear the sentence, go free from God? And the human mind thinks, well, as long as you're sincere and as long as you try hard, as long as you're good, as long as you're religious, as long as you're very religious, one day you will hear the sentence, go free, justified. And he says, was that how Abraham was justified before God? We all agree he was in a right relationship with God. How did that happen? Was it because of something he did or something that he was? Well, if it was, he would have something to boast about, but, it, but he didn't boast about himself. And then he goes on to say, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Then he explains, he's now gone from the law court, that word counted. You know that little phrase, I think it's, it's used by people who are not accountants. They call them bean counters, you know that, you know that phrase? He's taken us now to an accountant's office and he's got the credit and the debit. Now, you know what about this is, don't you? At the moment, I, I look at my bank account and the government, because I'm now of a certain age, credits to me my pension. They put it in. I'm in credit. They don't actually give me the money. It's in my bank account. It's credited to me. And all of a sudden, I go, oh, Jenny, we can go out and spend some money. You know, you can go and buy the Christmas presents. But you know the opposite of that. You're in debt. You're in debt. You're in debit. We're, we saw it in the red. I mean, I owe money. Well, this is the phrase he's using. Abraham trusted God. He believed God. And it was counted as righteousness. In his account, he was treated as if he were right, righteous. No charge to answer. He had lived the perfect life. Now, how did that happen? Well, it explains in verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as a due. What he's owed, you owe your wages. What was Abraham owed? And human beings think like this. We think like this. We can't help it. We're wired like this. If I work really hard and really good, God will owe me heaven. I, I, you know, I try, to, I try to be a nice person. God surely will, that's what he will give me. You're working for it. But he said, but that's not how Abraham got right with God at all. He didn't try to be a good person. He trusted believed God's promise. And notice how he unpacks it. It's one of the most most extraordinary verses you could ever hear. Verse 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, just work that one out for a Let that say that phrase, let it sink in. God justifies the ungodly. Again, we're back in the law court. Uh, recently, I don't know if you saw it advertised, it was a program, I saw it advertised. Steve Coogan, you know that actor, he, there was a program, he, he did a program on Jimmy Savile. He dressed up and he, they kind of did a kind of biopic of Jimmy Savile. Uh, and people were quite shocked. Now, you know Jimmy Savile's name. You know that name. What a terrifying thing happened. Great evil was unleashed. 
the man never met the justice of God, did he? Uh, justice of man, because it, was all, it all came out after he died. And as Steve Coogan played Jimmy Savile, there was a lot of hoo-ha in the press. But you imagine this, what if Jimmy Savile had been uncovered? And it had come to court. And all the evidence was presented. And then the judge said, well, Mr. Savile, you have been charged with all these counts. I've heard all the evidence, but I, I like Jim will fix it. I'll let you off. I'll justify you. You're manifestly guilty, but I will let you off. And the, the, the scream would have been, that's not right. That's not fair. How can you justify the ungodly? How can you, how can you say of the obviously criminal, evil person that they have no charge to answer? Well, you imagine if that happened at a human level. But here we have Almighty God. Almighty God who cannot look upon evil, who has nothing, you know, evil has nothing to do with his character whatsoever. He's perfect. God justifies the ungodly. The ungodly is the person who says, no God. We sometimes use this phrase at work. You've heard the Christian word sin. You know that word sin. What does that mean? We say, shove off God. I'm in charge. No to your rules. That's what ungodly means. Shove off God. I'm in charge. No to your rules. That's, that's all around, isn't it? In our culture today. But you'll know this, if you know your own heart, the biggest problem is inside of you. There's always a sort of slight resentment that he's God and that I'm not. There's always a slight sense of, why should he be at the centre? Why do I have to do what he says? That's what ungodly means. And it comes out of us in all kinds of ways. Words that we say, thoughts that we have, attitudes of our, our minds. As it did with Abraham. But Abraham heard this message. The God who is just, fair, right, has found a way of justifying the ungodly. How's he going to do it? Well, I tell you this story. Last year, one of our daughters got married. It was lovely. But, you know, I was really excited, but... As a dad of my age, I'm like, oh, do you know, all the hassle of like, oh, I've got to go and get suits and Jenny's got to get an outfit and oh, you know, I'm looking forward to the day, but I don't, I don't like shopping and all the faff. And they said, dad, stop that. You don't even need to think about it. The suit's been ordered. The color's been chosen. The style, the fit, the lot. All you've got to do, dad, is turn up to next. You don't have to buy the suit. You don't have to try anything. We've already got it sorted. All you have to do is turn up. The suit is provided. And it was. I enjoyed it. Enjoyed the day. I didn't have to do any of that shopping thing. It was a provided suit. Now, what the Bible tells us is this. Righteousness is provided for us. It's given to us. It's not something I do to be righteous. God puts righteousness in my account. He credits me with righteousness. He counts it to me. I owe God, 
Obedience, trust, love, worship. But I don't give it to him. I'm ungodly. But God has made a promise. Trust me and I will credit righteousness to you and your evil. I will lay in Jesus' account. He's gone on to explain the fantastic last verse at the end of the chapter. All this is for us also, he says. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, raised to life for our justification. The evil I've done has been put in Jesus' account. And he takes the consequences. And God credits to me the perfect life that Jesus lived. So in the law court, the judge, as he pronounces the sentence, as it were, there's been an amazing substitution. My evil is laid on God's own son. He takes my place and hears the verdict, guilty as charged. And that's what happens on the cross at Calvary. Paul's just explained it. God has laid on him the iniquity of us, as all, says one of the great writers of the Bible. For our transgressions, he was forsaken. He cries out in the darkness because the, the sentence of guilty as charged is on his head so that his Perfection is laid on my account. And God says there's no charge to answer. It's not that I've tried hard to be a good person. It's I've simply believed the promise. Trust me, I will take your evil and he will pay for it. God is the the just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. You see, God God is not kind of shady. The mafia have not bribed God. God is still God. But in his amazing grace, he's laid my evil on Jesus. And Jesus' perfection is credited to me. Now, he's using shorthand here. His faith is counted as righteousness. See that at the end of verse 5? To the one who trusts God, believes in God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That little phrase... Faith counted as righteousness is shorthand. Now, this is really important. This is really important. This. What God is not doing is saying, look, I'm looking into your life and I can't see obedience and I can't see worship and I can't see, tr- I can't see things that I can admire. But if I could just see a little bit of faith, if you could just give me a bit of faith, it'll be okay. And it's so easy to read what Paul is right here is saying, God sees faith, and that's all right then. Faith is not a quality that I offer up to God instead of obeying him. It's not like, I've got this thing called faith, God. Will you count that as, I'm in, am I in? Because I've got this thing called faith. Our culture thinks like that. I want to explain it a little bit more tonight. But faith is a slippery thing. But here, it's shorthand for faith in Jesus. He's going to explain. He's just explained it. In chapter 3, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. It's not this thing called faith. 
in itself. It's not a quality you have to kind of work up within you. It is trusting the promise that God makes that he will take your sin and lay it on Jesus' shoulders and Jesus' perfection is credited to your account. That, that's shorthand, and that's what God does. It's an amazing thing. Now, I, I don't know if you ever have been substituted. You ever, if you play sport, I, um, I, I snapped a hamstring. If you want to see, I've got a fantastic photograph of how bad my hamstring went. But, uh, so I couldn't play for weeks, and yesterday I came back. And they said, Ray, you're going to, you know, no, sorry, we're substituting you because we, we don't think you're very fit. They were true. That's right. And, you know, we don't think you can run around and, you know, your hamstring might go. So I spent half the game off the pitch. As I was being substituted. And normally when you play sport and Evans come off, put the substitute on, you know, do you ever, do you feel like that? Like, if you ever get substituted, you feel like you're a failure. But this, is the most amazing substitution. That God's dear son would put himself in my place in the dock to hear the sentence, guilty as charged. And then God can count me innocent of all charges, go free, justified, treated as righteous forever. What a substitution That is. That's what he's explained. Is this all new and made up? No, this is exactly how Abraham got right with God. And then in in verse 7, he said, uh, verse 6, he says, and let me tell you about David. Another great person who trusted and believed and was right with God. David found exactly the same. Now, it's interesting, some of you who know your Bibles will know in Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus... He starts with Abraham and he cuts it with David as well. These are two great men who were in relationship with God. What did David find? Well, David found exactly the same. David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, puts righteousness in their account apart from works, apart from what you do. Blessed are those whose deeds are forgiven. Their lawless deeds are forgiven. Their sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. See, God ought to count me as in debt. And it's an infinite, unpayable debt. But instead, he counts me as righteous for Jesus' sake. Then he asks the second question. This is the second question. Perhaps you could put it up, would you? Is this for me? Is this really for me? Because I'm not that religious. Do you have to become religious and really Jewish to, to know all this? Is this blessing? So 9 down to verse 15, really. He's asking the question, is this really for me? Because I'm not that religious. Is this blessing only for the circumcised? The people who are truly Jewish and who follow the Jewish laws and the Jewish ways. Is it just for them? Now, that's an important question, isn't it? You see, if you've been brought up to come to Whittlesea Baptist Church, you'll know names like Moses and Paul. And you'll know kind of, 
maybe you'll know some of the Ten Commandments. And you kind of, kind of seems, yeah, that's okay. So if somebody says, let's now turn to Malachi or Colossians, you don't go think, that's weird. You go, see, it's in the Bible. But for many people today, they've never heard of Moses. The Apostle Paul, you might as well be speaking French. Malachi, Colossians, sounds as if it's come from another planet. It doesn't feel the, the world in which I live. And if you're brought in and people start using words, like, oh, crumbs, this can't be for me. Assumes it isn't. Let me tell you, that's how I felt. I had a lovely home. But my, my family wasn't a religious family, really. I didn't go to church or chapel. I, didn't, we didn't have, I don't know if we had a Bible at home. I don't know. I don't think so. And when I first come across Christianity, it felt like it was a, like a golf club. You know, like golf clubs, you pay your dues, you, you know, you've got a secret handshake to get in. And, you know, the people who are members look at you as if, oh, like, yeah, I don't belong here. That's how it feels when you first come across Christianity. It can feel a bit alienating. It can feel a bit like this isn't for you. It's all right if you've been brought up in it, but if you're not, it's not for you. And that is such a tragedy. And the man says, no, it isn't just for religious Jewish people. It's for the uncircumcised. What he means by that is non-Jewish, irreligious people. This message is for everybody. Okay, so let's go back to Abraham. When did Abraham get right with God? When did Abraham know that his sins were forgiven, that he was at peace with God? Was it when he was very Jewish and had been circumcised as the great sign? Or was it before? When was it counted to him? When did God count to him, you are right with me? Peace with God, no charge to answer. It was not after, verse 10, it was not after him, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of a reality he already experienced. He goes on to explain. Because Abraham got right with God before he was circumcised, he can become the father, he can become the kind of, the the example to everybody. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe. Whether you've been circumcised or not, God can count you right. You have peace with God. Whether you're religious or irreligious, it depends on trusting God's promise. And then he goes on in verse 13. Say, did this happen before the giving of the law or after the great giving of the law. For the people who are listening to this, they really revered a man called Moses, one of the great leaders of God's people, who through whom God had given the great Ten Commandments and lots and lots of other laws. And they they valued those laws very highly because they were God's good laws. But what the question he asks is, is, when did this great promise come? Through the law or before? Well, he says in verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
But he says, he says, goes on to say in verse 14, if it depends on you keeping God's law, the promise is void. Because through God's law comes God's wrath, God's sentence of guilty condemned. The law can't give you trying hard to be a good person, even if it's God's law, it will, it will end in tears. No, he says, it came through a promise before the law and before he was Jewish. Therefore, this promise can be made to anybody and everybody. If that's how it came to Abraham, it can come to you like that. Yes, this is for you. And in the final section, verse 16 onwards, he really opens this up and he answers the question that should be going on in your heart right now. Should I trust God with my forgiveness? Should I, can I commit to God now? Should I trust God myself right now? And he goes on and explains this word, faith. Notice in verse 16. It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, to all people who trust God. It's a promise you believe coming from God's heart of love that puts you right with God. Not your, not your own sincerity or your own good intentions or, or how humble you think you are or how sorry you think you are. It depends on you taking God at his word. It depends on faith. Let's unpack that word faith just for a few seconds. What, it's a slippery word today, isn't it? Faith. Faith comes in all kinds of packages. You could say, I believe, as I do, Walker's cheese and onion are the best flavoured crisps on the market. That's my opinion. That's my preference. Is that what faith is? Is it an opinion? Is it a preference? Uh, something, I believe that two plus two equals four. But that's just logic and rationality. Uh, some faith is factual. 18th of June, 1815, the Battle of Waterloo. It's a factual thing. I believe that. It's a fact that I believe. But then some faith is personal trust. I'm sorry to say, Mr. Evans, you have prostate cancer, and it's going to kill you unless you trust yourself to the surgeon who can operate and save your life. That's, that's the different kind of... You see what I'm saying? Now, what kind of faith is in mind here? Well, it's not personal preference. It's not my taste or my opinion or what I like. It's not that kind of faith. There is a logic. He's explained the gospel logic. He's used two great logic areas. The law court, not guilty, guilty. That's law court language. You get the, the logic of someone taking your place to hear the guilty verdict that you might hear the go-free verdict. And he's used the accountant spreadsheet, Excel if they had one in those days. So you were in debt, but God credits to you the righteousness of Christ. That's logical, you see. Can you see the logic? The Christian gospel is not wishful thinking. It, it is, it, it, it's understandable. 
And it is also a factual faith. Abraham trusted God to do something in the real world. He was an old man. He uses this illustration. God, Abraham believed that the supernatural God would intervene. God promised him that he would have a son. You know, look, I'm old and she's old, but I trust your promise, God, that you will intervene. The faith of the Christian is not wishful thinking. It is a conviction that the God of heaven has intervened. He stepped in and done something for me. He became a man. He died on a cross to take God's judgment. He was laid in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. That Our faith is in those facts of a supernaturally intervening God. But it also is a personal trust in that one. Abraham trusted God. Notice verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. He grew strong in his faith. Now, if you misread that, you read it, it's like Abraham kind of worked this thing up inside of him and said, there you are, God, look. No, faith is, I feel, I can't sire a child. You have to do something miraculous. I trust you. I can't pay for the evil I've done. God says, trust me. I've sent someone who, who can and has. And I look to that supernatural intervention of God. And then I trust myself to him. Who do I thank for still being alive today? Well, I thank God, of course. But I don't thank myself for saying, you know, well, that, Ray, that was really impressive, the way that you handled that. You know, you really had a lot of faith. No, I thank Mr. Lamb at Addenbrooke's Hospital. I put my life in his hands. He saved me. I didn't save myself. It wasn't my kind of, I got a lot of positive faith, you know. It was, Mr. Lamb, if you don't intervene in my, in my life, well, how much more with Jesus? Our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in Jesus. We say to the Saviour, help, help. I cannot die and meet God as my judge without any hope. You are my only hope. If you don't die for my sins on the cross, I will spend all of eternity under the wrath of God in hell. Jesus, you're my only hope. I commit my life to you. I don't, I don't put my commitment as the thing, oh, I really admire your commitment. No, my commitment is in you. You're my only hope. I trust myself to you. You save. I can't save myself. You don't congratulate the patient for the, the surgeon's brilliance. You don't congratulate yourself for being a Christian. You thank Jesus he died for your sins on the cross. And this writer says this. Anyone can do that. This is for anyone. The, 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 the promise is for all those who will trust God's promise. 
You don't look at yourself. You look at God's promise. I promise you, I will take your sins and lay it on Jesus. I've laid Jesus' righteousness to your account forever and ever now. You are go free, justified, nothing to answer. Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you do that? I was so relieved when the man who told me the bad news could tell me the good news. There is a surgeon who can sort your, who can save your life, Ray. Well, okay, where is he? Let's meet him. Let's do it now. I mean, what? Wouldn't you? How much more with God? We are going to die, hundred percent guaranteed for all of us, and the Bible says we will meet God as our judge. Well, why don't you meet him now as your saviour? The God of heaven is willing to justify the ungodly. You are ungodly, so am I. Why don't you say, I'm in, Lord, I'm in. Jesus, now, will you forgive me? I trust myself to you. You are the one that forgives. I don't forgive myself. I trust your grace. And he goes on to say, and if you do that, verse 5, what do you have? You have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. And then we, we, we then rejoice. We have joy. We rejoice. We have a new joy with God. And we have a new love for God. And everything changes. Why, why wouldn't you want that for yourself? Whether you've been coming to Whittlesea Baptist Church since you can remember. Or if this is your very first time. I don't know. And when I discovered this. Well, let me tell you about my town in Bedford. There's a man called John Bunyan. You may have heard of, he wrote this great book. When he came to the cross and saw that Jesus died on that cross for his sins, he said, the burden of my, in my back, as it were, the, the guilt before God fell down into the tomb of Jesus. And then he says this, I leapt three leaps for joy. Three leaps for joy. I was a new man. That can be yours today. This is a magnificent message. For every one of us, isn't it? And it can be yours as you trust yourself to Jesus. Put all your trust in his ability to love you and forgive you. Don't put any faith in yourself. Put it all in him to love you and forgive you and be your saviour and Lord forever. Why don't we just close in prayer? Lord Jesus... Uh, This message almost seems too good to be true. We know that's how it was when it was first announced. People said, can it be that God would love me? And down through the centuries, that phrase, can it be, has rung in human hearts. But it is so. God loves the, the sinful. He came to save. He died on the cross, not for his own sins, but for the sins of all who would call on his name. And in our heart of hearts this morning, we commit ourselves to you, Lord Jesus. And may we come into that wonderful experience of knowing that we have peace with God, that we're trusting not in ourselves, but in what God has done for us. The God who justifies the ungodly. May that be the experience of us all, for Jesus' sake. Amen.